All right. I had originally planned to start off the sermon with uh, us reciting the Lord's Prayer, but we just did that. So we'll all lead us in prayer instead. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, this scripture where Jesus told us, this then is how you should pray. And we recognize that we face obstacles to our understanding. Jesus taught this 2,000 years ago, and we face a different world today. And Jesus taught this, and it was recorded in a different language uh, than what we speak today. So as we go through this passage, help us to understand what you meant uh, with these words, and help us to transform our prayer life to be one focused on you and not ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning marks our third sermon on the Lord's Prayer, and as we've talked about a little bit before, Jesus gives this sermon, uh, gives this prayer during the Sermon on the Mount, and it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 6. And as Dave and Andrew shared with us, there's a few key things that we should pick up on, and I want to remind us of from those first two lines of the prayer. Dave taught us that the, that the Lord's Prayer teaches us the person to whom we should pray, God our Father, and just the privilege associated with being able to call God our Father. We also saw that the Lord's Prayer teaches us why we should pray, that the Father's name may be kept holy, and how that is a prayer for our actions, it's a prayer for act- the actions of those around us, and it's also a prayer that God himself would act in order that his name would be kept holy. And the prayer also covers God's identity as the sovereign king over the heavens and the earth, a king whose kingdom is advancing into this world and whose will will be done. <clears throat> and so at this point in the prayer, we actually experience a little bit of a turning point. So we move from trans- we transition from praying about God and who he is and his will for the world, and we start to pray about our own needs. And we see this with the phrases, give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so this week we'll focus on the first of those three petitions, give us today our daily bread. Now when I read this at first, my thought is, sounds a little bit redundant, doesn't it? Why do we need to say both today and daily in this passage? But if you actually look at the original Greek language, uh, there is no redundancy. The words are quite different. And in fact, it actually brings up a different difficulty for us in understanding the passage. So the Greek word here that's translated as daily, and I'm going to butcher this, uh, epiosius, uh, it's not an easy word to translate nor pronounce. So one of the ways that Bible translators seek to understand the correct translation or meaning of a word that's given in the Bible is to look at all the different ways that the Bible uses it. And so for epiosius, it's used twice in the New Testament, once here in Matthew 6 during the Lord's Prayer, and the second time in Luke 11, which, as you may know, is a second, slightly shorter version of the Lord's Prayer. So there's not a whole lot of new context for us to look into and understand with that word. Another tool that scholars will use is they'll look at literature outside the Bible. Where else does this word appear in ancient Greek texts? And for many centuries, that was a problem as well, because there was not a single instance that this word was found in anywhere outside the New Testament. And so as a result, if you were to look through 
variety of commentaries or study Bibles, you might see a lot of different opinions on how this word should be translated and how we should understand this petition of give us today our daily bread. But eventually, this word was found, and it was found in northern Egypt on a small fragment of what appears to be a book of accounts. Uh, And in this book of accounts, the meaning of the word epiosis seems to be closest to our idea of a ration. And so if we think about praying for a daily ration or a daily bread, Jesus seems to be indicating here that the prayer should be about actual physical bread. Now we can kind of give ourselves a little more confidence in that idea if we think about how Jesus' audience may have understood this passage. So remember, as we just said, Jesus says these words during his Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew chapter 5, where the Sermon on the Mount is presented to us, says that Jesus spoke to the crowds. And you can imagine that the crowds were probably full of normal, everyday people, not much different than us, except they lived in a different time. So you think about first century Israel, getting food would be a lot more difficult than it was for us today. And so every single day, a lot of effort and a lot of energy and a lot of their focus would have been on finding food and finding water. And we can see this, actually, in another story of where Jesus is preaching to the crowds. After Jesus fed the 5,000, you may remember the first thing he does is he goes across to the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, making part of that passage on foot, walking on the water, and joining the disciples in the boat for the rest of it. And so the next morning, the crowds that he fed, they figure out that he's gone, and they figure out that he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they follow him. And when they find him, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answers, and this is from John chapter 6, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So Jesus is saying effectively, you traveled all this way just for a meal. I'm not sure the last time that I walked or rode a boat several miles just to get a simple meal. But that illustrates the disconnect for us, right? Clearly, first century Israelites found the journey worth the effort. Food was difficult for them to get. And so they hear the words, give us today our daily bread, there's little doubt in my mind that the very first thing they would have thought of was actual bread in front of them. As we talked about, that creates a little bit of a challenge for us because the need to pray for food is not so obvious to us in our culture. It's not hard for most of us to find food. Most of us will go through life without really experiencing any kind of real food shortage. So how can we hope to understand this prayer in the same way that Jesus' audience understood it in the first century? We have homes with good drinking water readily available, or as I like to say, on tap. Our pantries and refrigerators are stocked with food. And I think you can also see our culture's attitude towards food by looking at how much we waste. So the nonprofit organization Feeding America says that the average American throws away over 200 pounds of food every year. The total value of that food across the country, over $400 billion. And I think many of us had experiences during the pandemic when store shelves were empty or maybe early on when we were a little bit hesitant to go to the store we got a lot more food at our house than what we realized and we might have been able to go weeks or even months just with the food that we already had in our pantries our refrigerators and our freezers 
So getting food for us is often as simple as going to the kitchen. And maybe that's a little too easy. So how can we possibly relate to this idea of praying for something that's so easy for us to obtain? Well, if we continue reading into Matthew chapter 6, still in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus changes gears just slightly, and I think it helps us understand. So starting in verse 25, Jesus tells his audience a variety of things. tells them not to worry about their lives, what they're going to eat or drink. Don't worry about your bodies and what you will wear. God provides food for the birds, and he clothes the flowers of the field, so will God not also care for our needs? And in fact, if you continue reading into Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus comes off the mountain after his sermon, the very first thing that happens is he encounters a leper. And of course, this leper is in need of healing, and Jesus provides that healing. So Jesus shows what he just talked about, that God will provide for our needs, our physical needs specifically. And that's really what the petition, Give Us Today Our Daily Bread, is all about. It's not just for bread, but it's about all of our physical needs. And this is where I think we can all relate. Now, if you're anything like me, you might have a lot of to-do lists in your life, right? Things that you have to take care of, physical needs. Got to make sure the house is taken care of, the yard, the car. Got to have clean clothes. Got to have clothes that don't have holes in them. Um, Got to get food. You got to take care of your health. All these things are related to our physical needs. And when we create our to-do list, what we're doing is we're placing our focus on those physical needs. And that, I think, has an effect on our relationship with God. I can say that when I have a busy day with lots of things to be done, that it changes the way that I approach my devotional and prayer time. Often, it makes it shorter. Perhaps it pushes it off till much later in the day. Or it may not happen at all. But Jesus is telling us to remember to pray every day. And we actually probably should take an approach different than what I take, and more like what Martin Luther takes. On one occasion, Martin Luther was rumored to have told someone, I have so much business to do today that I shall not be able to get through it with less than three hours of prayer. So rather than putting off prayer or praying less, he prayed even more. And that's what Jesus is telling us here, that we should not neglect to pray every day for our physical needs. But there's another problem that we run into. The problem is that we're prone to thinking that we can take care of ourselves and we don't need to pray. And this is a problem that has long been around the human race. We had a reading this morning from the book of Exodus. If you fast forward about 40 years, and it's actually the next generation of Israelites, into the book of Joshua, we see them start to take possession of the promised land. And very early on, they experience a great victory at Jericho as the walls come tumbling down. And the next town that they set their sights on was the town of Ai. As you read the story, you see that Israel seems a little overconfident in their own abilities. So rather than consulting with God, how should we attack or should we even attack, they make their own plans. They also disobey God's law. God gives them instructions, as you may remember, on what to do with the spoils of the battle at Jericho. There are some in the, in the Israelites, who keep some of that spoil for themselves. And so as a result of their doing things their own way and their disobeying God's law, Israelites are defeated at Ai. They thought they could do it on their own. 
and they learned the hard way that they were wrong. I said, we're not really that different. The world tells us to trust in ourselves, sometimes tells us to trust in money. July 29th, some lucky person won $1.3 billion in the Mega Millions jackpot. Absurd amount of money. Uh, Anybody here think that they couldn't take care of their physical needs with $1.3 billion? We'd all like to try, right? I'm sure. But actually, experience tells us that winning the lottery doesn't solve our problems. In fact, I saw a couple different places. Of those who win $1 million or more in the lottery... 70% end up broke within five years. Five years, that's all it takes. And that doesn't count other costs. People lose friends. People alienate family members. And so most people who win large sums of money in the lottery end up regretting it. So what's the problem? Why doesn't this money solve all their problems in their life? Well, because they trust that money was the answer to all their problems. And they trust that it's going to give them everything that they want and everything that they could possibly need. So they fall under the the line of thinking that says, if we just have the right resources, we can totally take care of ourselves. And so like the Israelites, they found out the hard way that they were wrong. And so Jesus says not to place our trust in ourselves or on our money, but he teaches us here to place our trust in God and pray that he will meet all of our physical needs. And so that's really kind of the first lesson of this section of the prayer. Pray for your physical needs, just as Jesus says, rather than relying on yourself. Now, it's another important thing for us to realize as we go through the Lord's Prayer is Jesus is teaching us more than just what to pray for, but as he says, as he starts it off, this then is how you should pray. So in this petition, give us today our daily bread, or our rations for the day, Jesus tells us we are to pray every day, give us this day, and just for what we need, our daily bread. So Dave shared with us a portion of Exodus 16, where God first gives the Israelites manna. Now, if you were to read all of chapter 16, you would see that the people were commanded to gather just enough manna for the day, with the exception, as Dave spoke, of the sixth day of the week. And we're told that those who gathered much manna had just enough. And yet those who gathered very little manna, they didn't lack anything either. And those who tried to keep their manna overnight, with the exception of the Sabbath, in the morning found that their manna was stinky and filled with worms. So it didn't matter what you gathered, didn't matter the work that you did. Every day if you went out and gathered, you had just enough, just for the day. And that is our second lesson from this portion of the Lord's Prayer. Pray every day for just enough for the day. Now, why do we do that? Why is Jesus telling us to do this here? Well, it's because God wants us to live always dependent on him and his provision by asking and trusting every day that he will meet our needs. Now, as Dave kind of alluded to in the scripture reading, the Israelites failed in this lesson as well. Very beginning of chapter 16, as we read, it says the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron because they thought that they might starve. And of course, then God gives them manna, so they're taken care of. But if you continue reading, you don't have to go far. Very beginning of chapter 17, the very next place the Israelites make camp, they have no water. And their response is they again begin to grumble. In fact, it's probably pretty fair to say that the Israelites grumbled their way from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And they spent the next 40 years grumbling as they wandered through the desert. 
And at one point, in Numbers 11, we're told that they grumbled because the only thing they had to eat was manna. <clears throat> Could you imagine that? Forgetting that God, for all those years, was faithfully providing the manna. Just enough, just for the day, every single day, and grumbling about that. We see that a lot from that generation, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're probably not that different. So this is a generation that experienced the power of God many times in their lives. They had experienced the plagues that were brought upon Egypt and its citizens while they themselves remained unharmed. They had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground while those who pursued them were overcome by the waters and drowned. <clears throat> they had come to Marah, where they found a well, and the water was bitter. And they witnessed Moses throwing a piece of wood in there at God's command, and the water being made good. They had experienced a victory over invading armies time and time and time again, and so much more that we could list. And yet, they find every chance to grumble and complain. And in this case, at the beginning of Exodus 16, they would have rather died in Egypt than have faced the prospect of being hungry in the wilderness. So what's the root of their complaint? What are they missing here? Despite everything that they've seen, despite everything that they've experienced with God, why do they find occasion to complain and grumble? I think it's because their focus was on their physical needs rather than on the God who had met and would continue to meet those needs throughout their journey in the desert. So when the food or the water ran out, their first instinct was to freak out rather than bring their petitions to God. So what else does Jesus, does Jesus, sorry, Jesus teach us about how we should pray? <laughs> well, the next thing is that we should also consider the state of our hearts and minds when we come to God in prayer. Kind of like we just talked about with the Israelites there. They were focusing on the lack of food and the lack of water rather than focusing on God himself. So if you read through the Lord's Prayer and continue reading to the end of the chapter, Matthew chapter 6, 33, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, being food, drink, clothing, our physical needs, will be given to you as well. And so Jesus is saying here that our focus when we pray should not be actually on what we need, but on God and his kingdom. And we can actually see this reflected in the very order of phrases within the Lord's Prayer. We pray about God and who God is, and that his will would be done before we even start to talk and pray about our own needs in our lives. So we're to start with what's most important, and that's the third lesson of this section of the prayer. Seek God first and your needs later. When we seek God first, I think we'll find over time that trusting him becomes much easier. And we know from the Bible and from, I think, a lot of our own experiences that God wants to take care of us. Think about the words of Isaiah 55 from our call to worship this morning. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So this invitation from God illustrates that he wants us to trust him and him alone for our needs. He will provide for us, much like parents care for their children. And as we see in Matthew 7, if earthly parents know how to care for their 
children and give them good gifts, how much more will our Heavenly Father give us good things when we ask? So seek God first and believe and trust that he will meet our needs. If you think back to the examples that we've gone over with the Israelites and their defeated eye and their wandering and grumbling in the desert, it's clear that they didn't always succeed in putting God first. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we don't either. But in spite of that, God still remains faithful. So despite the Israelites' constant grumbling in the desert, at one point the man needed to know, is the Lord among us or not? God showed that he was indeed among them. He made it pretty obvious. Pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire in the night. Deuteronomy 8, and Janet alluded to this in her prayer confession, Moses talks about how God cared for his people as they wandered through the desert. Over 40 years, their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Anybody have a piece of clothing they've had for 40 years? <laughs> not likely. <clears throat> and after the Israelites were defeated at Ai, their response was to seek God, to repent of the sins that they did not listen and obey his will. And as a result, they experienced victory over the town of Ai, with many, many more victories yet to come as they occupied the promised land. So in short, we can say, and we can see in these instances, when his people fail, God still takes care of them. And in fact, he gives them another chance to obey his word. And that's kind of a picture of the gospel, isn't it? All of us have failed to live up to God's standard, but God provides another chance. He provided a sacrifice a way for us to be reconciled to him. And then he calls us into his presence so that we may experience relationship with him forever. In the book of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And so as Jesus teaches us to pray every day, including for our physical needs, we should also remember that this prayer gives us another chance to trust in the provision of God, and to set our hearts and our energies on God rather than ourselves. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we go through this life, let us have no other gods before you, even the gods of ourselves and our own needs. Help us to put you first in our lives, and help us to trust that you and you alone will provide all that we need. Amen. Thank you, Joel. So we're going to sing as a response to God's word, Rejoice in All Your Works.